All right, let's uh, let's begin reading in verse number one. We'll read five verses and then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. But make not thyself known unto the man, until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lieth down, that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in, and uncover his feet, and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me, I will do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time you've given us. Thank you for your precious word, Lord. Now we need it tonight. We don't just want it, but we need it this evening. So, Father, we come as your children in need tonight, Lord, that we might gain encouragement, that we might gain enlightenment, Lord, and that we might be drawn closer to you. Father, we love you. We thank you for what you're about to do. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we open in the third chapter of the book of Ruth, and you've got your notes right there in front of you, we're just going to walk through this outline, make a few comments about what we're reading here. But each of the chapters of the book of Ruth, we have divided them in geographic uh, order. And what we mean by that is that the book of Ruth chapter 1 presents to us the notion or, or the story or the picture of Ruth in the land of Moab. When we come to chapter number 2, we find Ruth in the fields of Boaz. When we come to chapter 4, we're going to see Ruth in the heart and home of Boaz. Chapter number 3 is a pivotal moment in this narrative because it's in chapter number 3 that we see Ruth at the feet of Boaz. Uh, we might say this, that in chapter number 3, the marriage deal is sealed. In chapter number 2, they are introduced one to each other, and they fall in love with each other. In chapter number 3, things get serious, amen? Chapter number 3, they start talking uh, weddings and marriage, and uh, they start hearing wedding bells. And it's a very interesting chapter in the Word of God. I think for no other reason, or if for no other reason, let me put it that way, if for no other reason, then because I believe that chapter 3 pictures for us the place that you and I as Gentiles occupy in this day of grace. You see, in chapter number 2, we find Boaz wooing Ruth. But we find in chapter number 3, Ruth worshiping at Boaz's feet. Uh, we might say this, that uh, there at the place of Boaz's feet, she finds the rest that she's been looking for. She finds the sustenance that she's been looking for. And there she finds the promise of a wedding soon to come that she's been looking for. In other words, as you and I are Gentiles, we were aliens from the family of God, from the commonwealth of Israel. But God loved us, and He showed compassion on us. And through the cross of Calvary, He wooed us, and He won us to Himself. And now we occupy this place as the church in this day of grace, seated at the feet of the Son of God, resting in Him and in who He is. And so I believe there's a lot of important truth that is found in Ruth chapter number 3. Now, something you have to understand, I believe I've said this before in our study, but I'll echo this thought again with you. Uh, you have to understand that you have a lot of types going on in the book of Ruth. I feel like sometimes we are much too one-dimensional in the way we view both of the Bible. What I mean by that is this, that as you look at the book of Ruth, in many ways you'll find that Naomi is a picture of backslidden Israel. 
you'll find that Ruth is a picture of the Gentile bride that is purchased in and unto himself. You'll find that Boaz is a picture of the kinsman redeemer. You might even go so far as to say that the kinsman that is nearer than Boaz is a picture of the law. But as you read through the book of Ruth, it can't be lost on us that Naomi, though she is a child of Israel, in some ways represents the sinner. Here she has gone her own way and gone, gone awry, and there was a way that seemed right unto her, but the end of that way was death. There she stood by three graves in Moab. And so in, in many ways, as you study the book of Ruth, you're going to find layers of teaching and layers of truth going on at the same time in the book of Ruth. I mean, it's not just one type taking place. Inasmuch as you follow Ruth as a picture of the sinner, there are a lot of different beautiful truths that you find. You could say this, and I'm of this opinion, that in, in Ruth chapter 1, whenever she makes that declaration, she chooses to go back to Bethlehem. I think it was at that moment that in her personal history, in her narrative, in her life experiences, I think that was the moment when she put her faith in God and righteousness was imputed unto her. But certainly it can't be lost on us that you have pictures of the sinner coming to Christ in chapter number 2. I mean, hey, she even says, why have I found grace in your eyes? And certainly even in chapter number 3, you can see some pictures of the sinner coming to know Christ. And so it's important as you study the Word of God, and especially as you read portions of Scripture that are very rich in typology, do not limit yourself to one vein of thought. Uh, I, I sort of like it, it described this way. Brian McBride that comes preaches for us a little bit, probably the greatest typology preacher that's walking the earth today, in my opinion. And he said this. He said, you know, on every page you'll find Jesus. And uh, sometimes you'll find him and it'll be in bold print. Sometimes you'll find him and it'll be like the little Shulamite girl that saw the bridegroom through the lattice work. Sometimes you'll just see bits and pieces but inasmuch as we strive to see Jesus and strive to see ourselves in a lost condition, we're going to find glimpses of that all the way through the Word of God. And so there are times when you'll be studying and, and a type will carry you so far, but eventually that type will break apart because it's merely a shadow. Uh, a, shadow's a shadow has a purpose, doesn't it? Amen? I mean, a shadow has a purpose. If you see a shadow being cast, that gives you an idea of the shape of it. But let me ask you this. Uh, next time that you... You fellas go to get a suit fitted, or next time you ladies go to get some alterations on a dress, just uh, tell that tailor to look down at your shadow and take the measurements off your shadow. It don't work that way, does it? That shadow gives you a picture, it gives you an idea, but it is not minute, nor is it meant to be minute. It is merely a shadow and not the substance. Well, in the New Testament, we've been brought into the light. And all things have been brought into the light, and the light of the world is shining in the New Testament. So everything changes. You see clear doctrine presented in the New Testament in a very, very bold and plain-spoken way. So I, I, I exhort you to that end because you'll find a lot richer study of the Word of God if you'll learn to look for Jesus everywhere that you read. And uh, you may just find a glimpse of him or, hey, you may find a time when you get to sit down in that passage and he's just everywhere. And both of those things are okay. That's all right. Uh, a good rule of thumb as a Bible student is this. Don't ever let a type define doctrine or determine doctrine for you. Always let the doctrine be the preeminent thing. In other words, we, we find out what the Bible plainly teaches, and then we look for that teaching in the Old Testament or in other portions of the Word of God. We might catch glimpses of it. We don't catch a glimpse and then try to use the shadow to determine the dimensions. No, we, we let the object itself, the doctrine, the teaching, determine what the shadow is telling so I exhort you to that study in the Word of God. Now, 
As we read through Ruth chapter number 3, I want you to notice first off in these first five verses the advice of Naomi. Look what she says in verse number 1. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know the conversation that was going on, but we end chapter 2 with this phrase, that Ruth dwelt with her mother-in-law. Now, I don't know about you, but I read a little bit into that. And I'll tell you why, because the next phrase that Naomi says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? Now, we sort of jump in the middle of a conversation in chapter 3. Uh, and, and maybe it is upon us to, to assume what the beginning of that conversation may have been. Can I give you an example? Maybe Naomi came around and said, Have you heard from Boaz? Maybe she came around and said, now I want you to tell me how Boaz was looking at you. Tell me exactly what he said to you. And I can hear Ruth saying, Mama, just leave it alone. Mama, just leave it alone. Mama, don't worry about it. And finally she says, shall I not seek rest for thee? In other words, she's saying, I'm just looking out for you. I'm just being what a mama is supposed to be. And so that serves as a segue, as an opening statement to Naomi's advice. She's saying to Ruth, what I'm about to tell you is for your own good. I am encouraging you in this pursuit because I believe that here you're going to find rest. Can I say a word to Christians tonight? Don't get discouraged sometimes when you're counseling and encouraging somebody and they don't always receive it the best. I had an experience just this past week where I tried to counsel with somebody, and, 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 I, and I'm not being ugly when I say this. I'm not being prideful. They needed my counsel. And uh, I, I made a statement to them, and it's somebody that I'm close with. It wasn't family, but it's somebody that I'm very close with, have a personal friendship with. And, and I gave this person counsel advice, and, and they kind of bowed up on me a little bit. Well, I don't know about that. And I stopped, and I said, let me ask you something. If anybody but Toby Weber was your pastor, would you have reacted that way? Oh, yeah, 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 I would have reacted that way to anybody and so on and so forth. And they didn't listen to my counsel. I hope that they do. I believe it will help them. Uh, and I believe God's put me here to be a help to people in as much as he'll enable me to do that. Sometimes it's discouraging when you give counsel to people. They don't always receive it the best. They don't always listen like you believe they ought to. Take encouragement from Naomi. Now, don't be a know-it-all. Don't be nosy and don't, don't be bossy. But she was looking out for Ruth. And because she was, she says, Ruth, I'm seeking rest for you. I don't look for you to live with me forever. I'm seeking rest for you beyond this house. Says uh, the, We see in, in uh, verse number 1 that Naomi pursues rest for Ruth. In verse number 2, Naomi perceives where Boaz is. She knows where he can be found. She says, And now is not Boaz of our kindred with whose maidens thou wast? That's another reminder. She's saying he's the marrying kind. He's the marrying kind. Behold, he went with barley tonight in the threshing floor. Now, there's a few important things to say about that. Uh, one, let me say this, that Boaz was active. He was busy. He was doing something. In this day of grace that we live in, Jesus Christ is not idle. He's active. I know he's not walking in physical bodily form through this earth. And anybody that tells you otherwise probably just ate too many fried taters before they went to bed. Uh, because Paul said he was seen last of all of me. But he is very active. And notice what he is doing. He is winnowing barley. Now, what does that mean, winnowing barley? Well, after they would pick all this barley, uh, some of it would be left in the field, but that which they brought home they would take. And uh, there was sort of two different ways that you could do it. Sometimes 
they would take and they would thresh that barley. They would beat it against the floor. Other ways is a lot of times you've seen them do this in elementary school and PE classes where they put a kid in the middle of a big sheet or a big parachute thing and they, they spread it out and when they do it launches that kid up in there. They'd take that barley and they'd put it in the middle of a large blanket or a, or a large sheet and they would throw it up in the air. And when they would do that, the, the wheat that had substance, that had, uh, that had weight to it, would fall back down and the chaff would just merely blow away. And so this was a, a purging process. Well, it's interesting to me that as you look at the language concerning uh, salvation and concerning those that make professions, you know, there's lots of folks that make professions that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say that we are not the profession police. Amen? That's not what we are. We're not the profession police. Our Boaz, he knows who's real and who's not real. There's another thing I believe worth mentioning, and that's the introduction of the idea of a threshing floor in the book of Ruth. Now, the threshing floor is pretty important. You'll find threshing floors all through the Word of God. Uh, you'll find uh, a threshing floor in particular that David purchased uh, from a man by the name of Orana, and he purchased that. Uh, Orana was just going to give it to him as a gift, but he said, I'm not going to take uh, a threshing floor to build the house of the Lord upon uh, that I've not paid for. And that threshing floor was the foundation and basis for the temple that David or that Solomon built after after David's reign. Now, I believe that's significant, and here's why. Because that threshing floor was the foundation for the temple of God. Isn't it interesting that here at this place of worship was the, the a threshing floor? Do you know that, that worship is the basis and foundation for the building of God's temple here on this earth right now in this day of grace? And that temple is the body of the believer, but that temple also, in a loose sense, can be understood as the church. The church has a foundation. And what is that foundation? That foundation is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the worship of Him. That's what Ruth was going down to when she went down to the threshing floor. She was going down there to the threshing floor, to the place where the harvest would be winnowed, that she might sit at Boaz's feet and find rest and worship in that place. And in the same way, there's a lot of things that, that the church is doing in the day that we live in, a lot of good things. A lot of activity, but let me say nothing substitutes that chief grand purpose for the church house, for the gathering together of local assembly, which is the exaltation of Jesus Christ and the worshiping of Him. Once you get that out of the picture, it won't be long before there's not a harvest to gather in. I, I, I think there's a place in His field, but I think there's also a place at His feet for the local church in this day, don't you? I believe we ought to work for Him, but I believe we ought to worship Him too. And I, I believe that worshiping people will be working people. And I believe that people won't work long if they don't learn to worship. Amen? So we find a lot of beautiful truth in verse number 2. She says in verse number 3, I like this, Wash thyself, therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor. Now, th this is kind of what she says. She says, you're going to go out of the house like that? <laughs> and she tells Ruth, Go wash yourself, anoint yourself. In other words, put that good smelling perfume on and, and put your raiment on. Put that pretty dress that I bought you on and, and get ready and get gussied up. Adorn yourself to go down to the place of worship. Can I say that that, that experience of worship began before she ever hit the threshing floor? She was getting ready. She was preparing herself. Could I say this without anybody getting upset? She put on her best clothes. She prepared long before she ever got there. 
real worship begins not on Sunday morning. Real worship begins on Saturday night, sometimes Friday night, sometimes Thursday night. Real worship for, for Wednesday night when we meet here and we preach and we sing ought to begin tonight if it's not already begun. Praying and seeking the face of God, getting ourselves in a mind frame to worship. I tell you, a lot of the reason we have trouble worshiping is because we don't give no thought to the Lord Jesus Christ until we hit the double doors. Let me tell you something. You want it to go well? And that's what that's what Ruth was saying, to, or that's what Naomi was saying to Ruth. She was saying, honey, you want this to go well when you go down there? You better make yourself fit for his presence. You better you better get the, the pretty clothes on. You better put the perfume on. You better wash yourself. If there's anything, any, any of that grime or muck on your face, you better get it out of the way because you want to look your best when you come into Him. I don't believe it's just about our appearance. I, I believe anybody that's got a problem with looking good for the house of God, then that's probably a problem for them. I believe we ought to give our best. But I don't believe that's the focus of, of the house of God. I don't believe it's about the clothes that we put on. But I do believe, Excuse me, there's a beautiful truth that's found here, which is this. Prepare yourself for the place of worship. I think when when she said wash yourself, it wasn't just about whatever muck was on her face, but she was saying, I want you to be in good condition when you get there. I, I understand the house of God is a wonderful place for God to convict us of our sins and us to ask forgiveness and get our sin out of the way, confess and forsake it before God. But I believe a better place is the prayer closet before we ever even get to church. I believe we ought to enter the house of God ready to worship, not ready to, to get somebody else to get us ready. That You see, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about Boaz to really know what he would have done, but I've got a feeling he might not waited 20 minutes while she got ready. Amen? <laughs> he might just left her sitting there. And, uh, you know, a lot of times the reason we're and, – and, folks, I'm not fussing. Folks is good around here. They don't – they let me preach, and they don't – I mean, if any, if there's ever a long-winded preacher, it's the guy right in front of you. But a lot of churches, the reason they're so dead set to get out, you know, start at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 o'clock dead, is because 12 o'clock rolls around and they still ain't even got, got worshiping yet. I mean, you know, they, they've sung a half a song and, and uh, took up three offerings and, and preacher got up there and gave a little, you know, two-minute thing that didn't, that didn't even come near preaching. 12 o'clock rolls around, they're ready to get out because they never even got started. I believe we ought to come ready to the house of God. We ought to come expecting something. We ought to come with worship in mind. So she says, get ready and go down to the floor. But she says, make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. Don't interrupt his meal. <laughs> in other words, his wishes have preeminence above your wishes, Ruth. When you get down to the threshing floor, it ain't all about you. It's all about him. I, I, let me tell you something. I didn't even plan on talking about worship tonight. I've not. You can look. I'm, I, I've got the same notes you do, and you won't find the word worship there once. But I believe the Lord has a lesson here for us. When we come into the house of God, it's not about us. It's about Him. And we'll find if we'll make it about Him, we'll get a little something for us. <laughs> Ruth didn't go away empty-handed. Hey, she 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 walked away. We ain't there yet. But look what it says down in verse number fifteen. Also, he said, bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. And she went into the city. I mean, she didn't go away empty-handed. She was the better because she came and put him first. When we come to the house of God, if we'll make it about our Boaz, I believe we'll go away with, with our baskets full. Amen. So don't bother him till he's done eating and drinking. This shall be when he lieth down. Thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie. 
Now shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. It's interesting that she, she doesn't say, Ruth, now you go in and make yourself known and wait for him to come to where you are. Instead, she says, Ruth, you go in and find out where he's going to be. And you get there before he ever gets there. And, or after he gets there, you get there, don't let him know that, that you're there, and uncover his feet. Now, why did she do that? Let me say that there's nothing vulgar or base about what's being said there. Uh, I know that sometimes in the Bible the term of, of covering your feet uh, denotes the idea of, of going to the restroom. That's not what it says. It says to uncover the feet. What, what she's saying is this. Boaz would have fell asleep after his belly was full and after he, he had worked all day. And there in that cool, a lot of times where the threshing floor would be would be in a cave because it would be dry. And saying in that, in that place, uncover his feet. Uh, don't come in and just expect him to work on your time, Ruth. You come in and uncover his feet, and when he's ready, uh, that cool air blowing across his feet will wake him up. You notice a theme here? Ruth, don't go barging in making it all about you. You go in, you find out where he's going to be, and you meet him there. Don't expect him to come to where you are. You go to where you know he's going to be. Uncover those feet and just wait. And if you'll go and if you'll wait, he'll wake up. It was said about old-timey churches, uh, particularly during the Welsh Revival that took place at the turn of the 1800s into the 1900s there in Wales. And by the way, that revival was so widespread that they said for decades after you couldn't find a bar anywhere in that part of country because it had just shut them down. It was so widespread, that revival. They said oftentimes they'd come and they'd sit. Nobody would say anything. They'd just sit and pray and wait on God to speak. Sometimes they'd go and sit for two and three hours and just wait on God to speak. You say, Preacher, do you think we ought to do that? Well, I don't think we ought to rule it out. But I think the spirit of that truth is really what we need to grab a hold of, which is this. Just because you've gotten to church, that don't mean you've had church. I, I, I told them last night as I was preaching, and, and I don't know if people really understood what I was saying, but I told them, I said, we had church this morning. Uh, you know, not every church has church. But we gathered in, the Word of God was preached, and the songs were sung, and God got in it, and God helped some folks, and and stirred on some people's hearts, and there's hands raised in need of salvation. And I, we had church. I won't say it's the best service we've ever had. I hope it's not the best service we'll ever have again. I hope that it gets better and better. But there's times that you have church, and there's times that you don't have church. What's the difference? Well, when your Boaz shows up, that's when something happens. When he shows up, things change. And so I don't think we need to be impatient. And I don't say that to lobby for longer preaching. And I don't say that because I don't feel like I don't get to preach long enough because I get to preach plenty long enough. I just say that we need to be patient in the house of God. So it says, go in, uncover his feet. He'll wake up. You show up. If you're there and his feet are uncovered, he'll wake up. Verse number 5, and, and she said unto her, by the way, and I, I don't want to skip over this. I ain't going to say a lot about it. But it says, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. Church isn't just for having a good time and feeling good, but it's to gain ground in our walks with the Lord. Uh, when we go, Ruth wasn't going to find out what the other maidens needed to do. She wasn't going to find out what Naomi needed to do. She wasn't going to find out what Boaz needed to do. She went and laid down there so that she'd find out what she needed to do. I've shared this with you before, but I reached a great place in my spiritual walk I, when I was about 15 years old, and I don't know why other than just the hand of God in my life. 
But for some reason, as a 15-year-old boy, I made my mind up that when I went to church, I was going to go and find out what God had for me. And it was one of the greatest periods of spiritual growth in my life. I was blown away by how God would speak to my heart. You know, I had an older preacher at the time, and I don't know that, that we had all that much in common, but that didn't matter because I wasn't going for him and he wasn't preaching for me. And sometimes he'd tell stories or chase a rabbit. And, you know, I mean, he is old. And I'm 28 and I do that. But, uh, you know, he was older. But when I made my mind up that I was there to hear what he had for me, I found out that God had something for me. And so Ruth says, Naomi says, Ruth, go lay down and wait and find out what you need to do. He'll give you instruction. Verse number 5, And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me, I will do. Ruth promises to obey the instructions that have been given her. So we see the advice of Naomi in the first five verses. The next couple verses we see the approach of Ruth. Now, I believe there's a lot could be said about this that we're not going to say. But look what it says in verse number 6. It says she went down under the floor. Now, I understand she went down under the floor because Bethlehem Judah was on a on a plateau and the, the, the valley would have been where the harvesting would have been done and where the, the fields would have been. But I believe it's also significant because it denotes the condescension that she had to take. It was an act of humility in some senses for her to go down there. Don't you imagine the terror that was in her heart? Well, what if he doesn't what if he doesn't love me? What if he won't do the part of a kinsman for me? See, it was an act of faith for her to go down there. It was an act of humility. I'm sure if she's like most young women, that she had all kinds of insecurities just playing pinball in her heart and in her head, thinking, he is not going to accept me. I'm going to go down there and make a fool of myself. But you know what she made her mind up about? It'd be better to be made a fool in faith to perish in pride. Let me tell you something, as we, as we approach unto the Lord, and he'll never make a fool of us. Now, we'll be a fool in the world's eyes. We'll be foolish in their eyes. But in his eyes, we won't be made a fool. But it'd be a lot better just in faith to go on down and, and, and meet with the Lord. And when we come to the house of God, come in humility and in condescension. We see her compliance at the end of verse 6. Uh, it says that she did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. That must have been tough for a young lady. Uh, to listen to all that her mother-in-law said, but she was the better for it. Let me tell you something. There's wisdom in a multitude of counsel. There's wisdom in a multitude of counsel. Uh, I'm glad, and and I'm sure I've got more pride than any man ought to have to deal with, and it hinders me in ways that you can't even imagine. Pride that I don't deserve to have. (laughs) And what I mean by that is I'm not, I, I don't even know why I struggle with it the way that I do, but it's more than any human being ought to. And uh, when you're placed in positions of authority at a young age, some folks despise your youth. I've been very blessed that I haven't had to deal with that a lot. But oftentimes, the way that you combat that is you become hard-headed. You quit listening to folks. I'm thankful that the Lord's patient with me. I, I, I need to listen more than I do listen. Can I? Confession's good for the soul, isn't it? I need to listen more than I do listen. Because it'll do us good if we'll listen to the folks around us that God has put in our pathway. You say, what if somebody gives me bad advice? Well, uh, I believe that's what the Holy Ghost is for. He'll guard us from some bad advice. Uh, the trouble with advice is if, if, if you don't know good advice from bad advice. If you knew good advice from bad advice, you wouldn't need any advice. But the Holy Ghost indwells us, and he'll lead us, and he'll guide us. Ruth did the right thing. She listened to her mother-in-law, Naomi. It says in verse number 7, we see her caution. And when Boaz had eaten... And drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly and uncovered his feet 
and laid her down. Now, I believe there's something we need to understand, and we're going to talk a little bit about it uh, down when we get into verse number 9. But she had a right to expect this of Boaz. She had a right to expect it of the kinsman that is nearer. But some folks would have come in and demanded. But she came in and requested. She has caution when she's coming in. You know why she came in quietly? Because she didn't want anyone to misinterpret what was taking place. Uh, there are some folks that have tried to claim that that the the place of of harvesting was a was a frequent place of prostitution, immorality, and things of that sort. Uh, most commentators, in fact, none of the commentators that I've read say anything about that. I don't think that was the case. But I don't think we need to be dismissive of how bad this could have looked either. Uh, I, I don't think we need to imply that there's anything lurid or illicit taking place. And, in fact, I would say that Scripture plainly teaches that there's not anything of that sort going on. But there's no question that it could have looked poorly for going into this cave to this threshing floor in the depths of the night. And so she uses caution. She guards her testimony in a careful way. And in guarding her testimony, it's interesting to note, she wasn't just guarding her own integrity. But when she guarded her integrity, she was guarding Boaz's integrity. You see, their testimonies were linked one to another. What a lesson for you and I. You hear people say sometimes, well, I don't care what people think. Well, you know, I understand what you mean. We can't live in fear of people's opinions all the time. But let me tell you something. You better care what people think. Because what they think about you is very likely to be what they think about Jesus Christ. I, you know, I understand we can't live in fear of everyone's opinions all the time. But let me tell you something. Most of the time when people say that, well, I don't care what anyone thinks, I don't care. Most of the time they're not talking about something reflecting their Christian testimony. Most of the time they're talking about something of personal opinion and preference. Most of the time they're not saying, well, I don't care if somebody sees me carrying my Bible. Most of the time they're not saying, well, I don't care if somebody sees me praying and asking God's blessing over food at a restaurant. Most of the time they're saying things like this. Well, I don't care what people think the way I dress. Or I don't care what people think the way I talk. Or I don't care what people think the places I go. Let me tell you something. You better care because you have a lost and dying world watching you. And your testimony is linked to Boaz's testimony. People are going to have an opinion about him based upon their opinion of you. So she shows caution. We see the approach of Ruth in verses 6 and 7. We see the alarm of Boaz in verses 8. And the first part of verse number 9. Look at the confusion he depicted. It says, And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid. Well, you would have been too. <laughs> if you woke up and somebody's laying right there at your feet. Uh, you would have been too if you'd woke up. People have, uh, you know, I, I don't have a phobia of snakes. All right? I, I don't like them. I don't cuddle with them. But I don't have a phobia of them. Uh, but when we go to camp up there at Big Ridge, there's black snakes around. I'm glad there are. That's less mice and stuff to be around. Uh, but a lot of times if we catch a black snake, we'll, we'll do away with it. And I don't know if that's legal. They might, like, jail me for a thousand years for saying that. But, but we'll take care of them. People say, well, why do you bother them? I mean, they're not bothering you. Let me tell you something. If you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning with a snake coiled up on your chest, you don't have time to figure out what kind of snake it is before you swallow your heart and run screaming through them woods, all right? Uh, yeah, I understand there's a lot of black snakes up there. There's probably a few copperheads, too, and I don't want to be figuring out in the middle of the night which is which, all right? I got faith, but I don't have as much faith as some of those brethren, amen? And uh, 
So I'm sure he was afraid. He wakes up and this this lady is down at his feet. There there is a confusion that he depicted. But notice the companion that he discovered. It says, verse number eight, he's afraid and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Now, he's going to ask who she is in a moment, but I think Boaz had a good idea of who she probably was. Probably in the midst of the moonlight, he could tell by her by her slender figure and by the lack of a beard and, and, and by the fact that she's laying at his feet. He knows uh, what has been taking place. He knows that there's this, this love and romance developing between him and Ruth. Probably he had an idea of who that she was. But he requests something of her. He says this. Verse number 9, and he said, Who art thou? There is a confession that he demanded. Now, again, don't think anything lurid is going on. If it, Let me tell you something. If something lurid was going on, he wouldn't have woken up with alarm. And she, wanted, she would have been laying beside him, not at his feet. There's nothing illicit or lurid or vulgar taking place here. She is laying at his feet, far away from his, from his body, but enough that he notices her when he wakes up. But before he'll proceed any further, she has to say who she is. Verse number 9, we see the appeal of Ruth. It says this, and she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. You know, a lot of times what God's waiting on before he'll meet with us when we come to the house of God and worship, he's waiting on us to confess who we really are to him. When we come into the house of God, you know, you know, oftentimes the problem, we come into the house of God, we think we're somebody. That's the reason we come into the house of God, we get upset if somebody's in our pew, or we get upset if somebody sings our song, or, or the preacher sometimes, and, I, I, and even I have to battle my flesh sometimes, somebody didn't say the right thing, or, or didn't say this, or did say that. Let me tell you something. You know, you know the kind of people of the Lord that Boaz is looking to meet with when he finds them at his feet? The people that will say, it's just little old Ruth here. Thine handmaid, thy servant. It's just little old Ruth here. She didn't say, I'm Ruth, your future bride. <laughs> she said, I'm Ruth. I'm your handmaid. I'm not much. I'm not anybody. I believe we'd be helped if when we come into the house of God, we come with the attitude, hey, I'm nobody. It's not about me. It's about him. I'm nobody. I'm just here to get some help. She says, I'm Ruth. And we notice her reverence in verse number 9. Now, again, she could have demanded, but she asks. She says, Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. She could have said, I'm here for your proposal, Boaz, because you're the near kinsman, but she didn't. She said, I'm your handmaid. She comes with a reverence, but she comes with a request. Now, a lot of people have stumbled at this, and uh, I think part of the reason is because of a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of the usage of that word skirt uh, that is in the Old Testament. Now, it is true that oftentimes you'll find that word skirt uh, denoted with the privacy and, and with the, the physical relationship between two married folk. You'll find it in the book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy, where it talks, gives laws concerning who can marry who. And uh, it talks about the abomination, for instance, if a son was to marry a, a stepmother because he is discovering his father's skirt. But understand that that word does not only and wholly denote the idea of a physical relationship. Rather, that same word skirt, you'll find it a lot of times in the Bible, but do you know the psalmist used that same word, but he used it as this. He talked about the wings of the Almighty. 
You remember what the psalmist said? In fact, I'll turn over there. I'll read it to you. I believe it's in the, the 91st Psalm, if I'm not mistaken, when it says this. Let me turn over here and find it. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noise and pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers, and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. It was common in that day, and in fact, in Orthodox Jewish communities, it's still common today. Some folks believe it was the prayer shawl that would have been used, but typically only Levitical priests would have had a prayer shawl. But oftentimes they would take the outer cloak that they wore, and they would cast it over the woman that they were going to marry. And it was a picture of their protection that they were pledging, and their provision, and their love for that person. It is not saying that Boaz took his clothes off and and threw them over uh, Ruth, or that anything lurid or illicit is taking place, but rather what is denoting is that that outer cloak, which very likely Boaz was probably using as a blanket at that moment, was probably that very thing that had been uncovered off of his feet, that outer cloak that they would have worn, similar to a mantle that the prophets would have worn, that they would have bundled up and used as a blanket at nighttime to take that outer garment, like a coat that we would wear, and to cast it over Ruth. What she's saying is this. She's saying, Boaz, will you marry me? Boaz, will you protect me? Will you provide for me? Will you call me by your name, Boaz? Boaz, will you do the part of a kinsman for me? Will you watch over me? Will you take care of me? Let me say that when we come into the house of worship, that ought to be one of the things that's a priority to us. I'm thankful the Lord blesses us. If you're around here a lot, you'll hear the word bless a lot. (laughs) And that's good. I don't think that's a bad thing. What are we talking about when we're saying blessed? Well, usually we're talking about the Lord's protection, the Lord's provision, the Lord's peace that he gives us, the Lord's presence. See, all this was what Ruth was asking of Boaz. When she was saying, would you spread your skirt over thine handmaid? Would you spread your skirt over me? She was saying this, Boaz, can I come rest under your protective wings? Gives a lot of insight to what Christ said in the book of Matthew when he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, how oft would I have gathered thee as a mother hen doth her chicks under her wings? What he was saying to Israel was this, I wanted to be for you what I'm about to be for this Gentile bride. I wanted to love you. I wanted to protect you. I wanted to provide for you. You see, in 70 short years, Jerusalem was going to be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles. And to this day, we're still living in the times of the Gentiles. To this day, you go over, if you were to go over in Jerusalem right now, you'd find people walking down the streets with rifles slung across their arms. You find every day, if you watch the news, there's stabbings and killings taking place. Righteousness is not reigning in the land of Jerusalem right now. No doubt the the infallible and omniscient Son of God could look through the ages and see all the hatred, all the murder, all the violence, all the unrest, all the lack of peace that would plague that land and said, I just wanted to love you. I just wanted to protect you. I just wanted to watch over you. Just a couple of short days later, they took and nailed him to the cross. Say, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, I'm, I'm saying this. 
that the very thing that Boaz did for Ruth is what he's done for you and me. When we come into the house of God, one of the priorities for us when we go down to the threshing floor ought to be to gain and to claim that promise from him of all this goodness that he has promised to us. It says in the end of verse number 9, it says, For thou art a near kinsman. We see her reasoning, and, and I've said too much about too much already, so I won't, I won't dwell on that. But suffice it to say, she's saying that, Boaz, you have a right and you have an ability to do this. There's faith when we come to the house of God, isn't there? There's faith right there. Lord, I'm asking this of you because I believe you can do it. I believe that you're able, and I believe you're, it's appropriate for you to do it. I'm at, I've come in need, Lord. I've come in need, not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, I've come, and I know you're able. Verse number 10, we see the answer of Boaz. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not, I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman. Howbeit, there is a kinsman nearer than I. Tarry this night, it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee, as the Lord liveth. Lie down until the morning. Now, there's a lot of things that happen. I want you to notice in verse 10 that Boaz compliments Ruth. He does not answer her harshly. This is the first thing that he speaks to Ruth after Ruth makes known who she is. Now, this is an important moment, you understand, because Boaz has been asleep. Ruth has awakened him. He says, who are you? And she answers. She says, I'm Ruth, and I'm here to ask for you to ask me to marry you. I'm here that you might marry me. You're a near kinsman. I believe you're able. And this is the first time that Boaz answers after after it's been confirmed who it is that's lying at her feet. This is a crucial moment for her. You can imagine how with bated breath she waited to see what he would say. And the first thing he says is, Blessed, blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter. Let me tell you something. The Lord longs for us to come into his presence. It's not laborsome for him. It's not an imposition for him. I promise you, it ain't no trouble for the Lord to show up at this church on Wall Ridge Road, show up at a church across town, to show up at a church halfway across the world. It's no, it's no, no difficulty for Him. It's no taxing on His presence. He longs to. You know what we find when we approach uh, the house of God the same way that Ruth approached the threshing floor, when we come ready for God to meet with us and ready to find where He is and get where He's at and come with the right spirit, the right attitude, not come demanding, but come imploring and appealing to Him to do for us what needs to be done. He says, hey, you're blessed. You're blessed of me in that you've come in this way. She, uh, he compliments Ruth. He consoles Ruth in verse number 11. And, and by the way, there's a lot could be said about his statement in verse number 10 in that Ruth, uh, she, didn't, she didn't fall out of love with him. She fell more in love with him. She didn't say... It, it, Boaz says, hey, it's just getting better and better. You're just getting sweeter and sweeter. I know that the Lord gets sweeter every day to us, but I wonder if we get sweeter every day to Him. I know that I have days when I'm not what I ought to be. Most of my days, I'm sure I'm not what I ought to be for the Lord. But we ought to strive not to, not to lose our first love. 
but to rather grow closer to him. Verse number 11, he consoles her. He says, And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. That, that's sort of like Boaz saying, I do. <laughs> I do. Ruth says, Will you? He says, I will. I'll do every bit of it that you need done. I will be for you what you need for me to be for you. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. We see not only that Boaz consoles Ruth, but we see that Boaz has a conflict. or Something must be addressed first. Verse 12, And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman. Howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I. Now, this is interesting, especially in light of what we preached on yesterday morning. Yesterday morning we preached on what the law could not do. Now, when, when we speak of the law, we understand that the law is not of faith, but it's of works. That's what Paul said in the book of Galatians, uh, that, that whosoever abides in the law must keep the law, must be a doer of the law. The law could not appeal on the spiritual realm. It wasn't built that way. But it did appeal on the fleshly realm. It dealt with the flesh. It tried to regulate man's poor behavior, and it could not regulate it. And it's almost as though Boaz is saying this to her. I'll be what you need for me to be. But there's someone that we got to make sure he can't do it first. And Ruth, you need to understand, before I can ever be for you what I need to be for you, you have to recognize that he can't be for you what you need him to be for you. Boy, it's a good thing when we can come in the house of God and just get the flesh out of the way, isn't it? and recognize that in the energy and arm of the flesh, nothing can be accomplished. Now, I'm not saying the law is bad, and I don't have re- time to re-preach my sermon. I, I, I just barely got it all preached yesterday morning. But what a beautiful truth here, that basically what Boaz says, it says, you watch and see, he won't be able to do for you what needs to be done. It ought to be a constant reminder to you and I, that the arm of flesh will always fail us. It's interesting that the kinsman was able, but he was not willing. You know why he was not willing? Because of who Ruth was. What did our text say to us yesterday morning when we preached? What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh condemned sin in the flesh. The law, the commandment, was holy and just and good. Nothing wrong with the law, but there was something wrong with us. And we need to quit leaning on the arm of flesh because it fails us every time. The kinsman was able, but he wasn't willing. Why? Because of who and what Ruth was. But hey, even if the nearer kinsman wouldn't do it, there was a kinsman that would. Let me tell you something. Even though the arm of flesh will fail us every time, there's one that's able. And if we'll quit leaning on the arm of flesh, we'll find that in him we'll find the strength to do what needs to be done. And he'll do in us that which we need. Notice what it says. Boaz comforts Ruth and Boaz confirms his promise to Ruth in verse number 13. He says, Terry, all night, just stay here. Don't go anywhere. Just stay here. It shall be in the morning that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee, as the Lord liveth. Lie down until the morning. Now, he confirms his promise in that he says, as the Lord liveth. 
Now, you and I, we may not take that very seriously because we didn't live in this time. But in this time, that was a binding promise. He, he, was, he was swearing, in a sense, and, and I understand what the Bible says about swearing, but, but the Bible also says that an, an, earth, uh, an oath is confirmed by the mightier, by the stronger, by the better. And what he is saying is this. He's saying, Ruth, the Lord is a witness to you and me tonight. Ruth, no one else is here that's paying attention to what's happening. These other men around here, they're asleep. The other maidens are out in their areas and they're asleep. You and I, me and you, we're alone right now. But there's a God in heaven that's watching what's taking place. And Ruth, I promise you, inasmuch as he liveth, as he is sitting in the heavens right now watching what's happening, I will do this for you. I call him to record this day what I'm doing for you. Isn't it interesting? You know that the Lord saves us. And the Lord wants to save us. I'm aware of that. He's not willing that any should perish. But you understand, the book of Hebrews says this, that by two immutable truths, it's talking about when God made a covenant with himself and and brought Abraham into it. God swore by the greater. Well, who's the greater? He swore by himself. He bound himself through his word. You say, preacher, why do you believe in all this once saved, always saved business? I'll tell you why I believe in it. Because I have the promise of the word of God. My salvation is directly linked to this book. Heaven and earth may pass away, but this word will not pass away. Everything may go wrong in my life, but this book will always be right. My salvation is based upon that. And he comforts her. He says, I want you to stay here tonight. Beautiful picture of the place. You know, right now we're living in the night, but the day is soon coming. And the church finds itself at the feet of Jesus. You say, what do we do, preacher? We just stay at the feet of Jesus. Just stay at his feet. One day, morning will come. We see not only the answer of Boaz, we see the admonishment of Boaz, verse 14. There's a little bit of debate as to who he's saying this to. But it says, And she lay at his feet until the morning, and she rose up before one could know another. And he said, Let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. Now, some people believe he's talking to the other men, the, the, the reapers. Uh, I don't believe that way. And let me tell you why. Because I see this as one unbroken conversation. Because it says in verse 15, Also he said, Bring the veil that thou hast upon thee. So he's talking to, to Ruth. And most commentators would tell you otherwise. Uh, and I, I don't know why the Lord only showed it to me and didn't show it to all them smart fellas. But, you know, somebody's got to be right. I guess it can be me. Uh, but I, I believe he's saying this to Ruth. And, and there again, she is admonished to be mindful of her testimony. And you know what beautiful truth I see here? He's saying this. Go out. And, and, and go out before anyone can know you. I don't want anyone to think that, that something happened here that didn't happen. And I don't want anyone to think that nothing happened here when something happened here. In other words, he's saying this, I want the record to be straight about the promise that I've made for you. Preacher, why is it so important that we give people our testimony? Why is it so important that we tell people what God did for us? Let me tell you something. I don't want them to think some self-help book is what gives me my song. I don't want them to think the numbers in my bank account is what gives me my song. I don't want them to think that that the house I live in or the car I drive or the clothes I wear is what gives me my song. So let me just go ahead and tell folks what happened there on the threshing floor. Let me just set the record straight that it's the promise of God that gives me the song that I sing and the joy that I have. I don't want anyone to think otherwise. 
We see in, in verse number 15, we see the abundance of barley. And we won't say a lot about this, but I want you to notice that the amount was sizable in verse 15. He says, Bring the veil that thou hast upon thee, and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. And she went into the city. Now, that was a lot of barley. Uh, you say, how much? I, I don't know. A lot. <laughs> a whole bunch. I know I give you all them figures about an omer and an ephah a couple weeks ago. I don't know how many, how much barley that six measures is, but I know it was enough that she had to uh, bundle it up in the veil that she had been wearing. Uh, it, it was an abundance. Uh, Boaz didn't send her away with, with nothing, and he didn't send her away with a little bit. Uh, she came in the right way, with the right attitude, with the right request, and she walked away full. She walked away with more than she could have ever imagined. Man, that's an encouragement to me. I think sometimes when we come to church, we think, well, you know, if, if, if the choir gets on it, it'll be real good. Right? Well, if the choir, I don't know, maybe maybe you're more spiritual than I am. I'm just telling you how I think. Well, if the choir gets on it real, well, if the congregational singing is good, it, you know, it might get real good. Well, you know, if special singers sing something, you know, real good, it might get good. Or, you know, if the preacher gets up there and he's really got that, you know, one of those sermons, I mean, it might get real good and everything. And, you know, I think we could probably go church this way and say this, man, if my heart's right, it's going to get good. If my heart's right, I'll go away with all the barley I need. I don't know what everybody else is going to walk away with, but if I'll go the right way, I know I'll get what I need. We see the amount was sizable. We see the amount was more than sufficient. I think sometimes the reason we, uh, let me say this right, because I believe in the midweek service. <laughs> amen. I believe, I believe more people need to believe in the midweek service. Somebody say amen to that. But you know what you hear people say all the time, all the time. They say things like this, well, I need the midweek service because I'm so drained by Wednesday. And I hear people say that about, about senior saints on Friday. Man, that's so good because I'm, I'm usually just dragging, you know, by Friday and, and everything. And I'm, I'm not downplaying that. I mean, get all the help that you can get. But could it be, could it be that when we go, we could get more than what we'd need if we go with the right attitude? Could it be that if we took what we got and went home and made bread out of it and kept eating on it, we might not feel so weak and anemic by the time the midweek service comes around? I'm not fussing. I, you know I'm sure not saying you need to lay out a Wednesday night church. I'm just saying this, that maybe if we go with the right attitude and if we go home and not just sit the barley over in the corner till it rots away, but if we take it and make bread out of it, get what we need out of it, meditate on it. You understand what I'm saying? Meditate on it. Study it in our own time. I, I don't know if you know this, and I, I'm not being a, a smart aleck, but I don't know if you know this, but did you know that Romans 8 was in your Bible Sunday night same way it was Sunday morning? You know? <laughs> you can keep studying on it. You can keep learning from it. You can keep gleaning from it. Hey, you can just reach in and get another big old handful of that barley. Make up some more bread for yourself. I'm not minimizing the house of God. I know there's a place. I know, and I'm not trying to say we don't need it. We do need it. We desperately need it. But I'm saying that maybe if we came the right way, we'd go away, not just dragging, and not just with a handful, but with more than enough. The amount was more than sufficient. Uh, we see that the asking of Naomi is significant. This is funny. This echoes what happens in chapter 2. It says in verse 16, And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? Isn't that an interesting question? She knows who she is because she says, my daughter. 
And she knows who she is because I don't think Naomi was living in a mansion. I don't think she walked up and pushed the button on the intercom at the gate. She walked in the door. Naomi knows who she is. You know what she's saying? She's saying, is that Mrs. Boaz I see coming through the door? (laughs) What she's saying, is that Mrs. Boaz I see there? That's her little way of saying, tell me all about it. How did it go? What did he say? Is there going to be a wedding soon? Do I need to start mending a dress for you? Her asking is significant. I believe one of the reasons that her asking is significant is because she sees all that barley she's carrying. And you know you know what she says? She says, somebody loves you. Look at all you're carrying. Somebody loves you. You know, maybe our testimony might be if we went the whole week just rejoicing in what God has done in our heart, not just Sunday morning or Sunday night, but Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, the way that God is feeding us and helping us and encouraging us. Could it be that maybe somebody might look at us and say, you know, you act like somebody loves you. Maybe an open door for the gospel. What do you think? And she told her all that the man had done to her. Told her all about it, every bit of it. And we see the assurance signified was special. Verse 17, and she said, These six measures of barley he gave, gave he me. For he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. So he says this, There's not a wedding yet, Ruth. When you go home, I want folks to know what my answer has been. That joy that we have in the Lord, that's a good indication of the wedding that's soon coming. We see the affirmation of Naomi, verse number 18. Two things that Naomi says to her, and I believe that the Lord says this to us. Then said she, Sit still, my daughter until thou know how the matter will fall. I don't think that she is saying, Ruth, sit still and we'll see how this turns out. Here's why. Because it says in verse number 18, for the man will not be in rest until he has finished the thing this day. I don't think Naomi, given her excitement, is saying, well, you know, maybe it'll all work out. I think what she's saying is this. She's saying, all right, Ruth, don't pick anybody else out. Don't go to anybody else's fields. Don't go making eyes at anyone else. You just sit still until this thing happens. To tarry, to tarry, to tarry. You know what? You know what God's admonition to us is? Hey, you just hang close to Boaz. One of these days, one of these days he's going to marry you. Our hope and our promise that we have of this inheritance in Jesus Christ is what drives us forward and keeps us serving God. You know what we're doing? We're tarrying until this thing is accomplished. Oh, I know we may have dark days. We may have frustrating times. We're just tarrying. One of these days he's coming. To tarry and then what? To trust. This man will not be in rest until he has finished the thing this day. He's going to be active. He's going to make this happen. 